Hello again. Uh, some of you may not have known uh, Greg Shanup, who is one of the founders of the church. He pastors a church nearby called Faith Fellowship, has been sick. Uh, I just heard from a friend he's actually doing a lot better today, and I think he got a little better last night. But anyway, just pray for him. Some of you that have been a part of the church for years remember him as one of the founders that helped us get it started. Um, so just keep him in prayer as he recovers. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to Nehemiah, everybody's favorite devotional book in the Bible. Just crack it open. You know where to find it, right? Um, it's kind of in the middle, so here's, here's mine. It's, it's kind of uh, left of middle, maybe. It's page 399 in the Black Bibles. If you're grabbing one of those Black Bibles nearby, page 399. Uh, as we have been praying about uh, expanding our physical structure here, uh, one of the books that keeps coming to my mind and heart is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding the city of God's people after the exile. Uh, so we're going to come back to that as a way to focus in on this God who wants us in our relationship with him uh, to rebuild what's been destroyed. So this uh, subtitle for the series is Repairing the Ruins. We believe that that's really the story that gets uh, told again and again in all of Scripture. Right? The story is that we have, because of our sin, ruined the world that was good, and God is now fixing it. And God calls us into the work of fixing the world along with him. So we're called into, as followers of Christ, we're called into repairing the ruins ourselves. But ultimately, it's about God being the one that's repairing the ruins of this world. Uh, so we'll get to kind of zoom in on this in history with Nehemiah. Um, the Israelite people as a nation had sinned against God. And God said, if you continue to do this, I'm going to scatter you. But he'd promised through Jeremiah, after 70 years... I am going to bring you back to the land, and we're going to start this work all over again. Um, and so this is the fulfillment of a prophecy by Jeremiah that they would come back to the land. Ezra and Nehemiah go together as a pair of books. So if you want to read Ezra, you get more background. Ezra was more of the preacher. Nehemiah was more of the kind of executive builder guy. So Ezra was focused on the rebuilding of the temple itself where they worshiped God. Nehemiah is focused on the infrastructure of the city, building walls of the city around that temple. Um, basically for security. Without walls, they had no physical security. So imagine what it's like growing, in a, growing up in a neighborhood full of crime or in a place where the police just never come. That's what it's like in the ancient world to have no walls around your city. So we'll see this in Nehemiah. We'll unfold this step by step over the next uh, eight or nine weeks. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of Nehemiah chapter one, um, and then I'll kind of read the rest of this chapter as we move through the sermon today. Uh, it starts out, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, their capital city where the temple was. Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So here's the problem. Uh, what is God going to do about it? What is Nehemiah going to do about it? Let me pray for us. We'll ask God to teach us today. God, we pray that you would teach us, that you would help us to just bridge the gap culturally between now uh, and then, that we would see how you were at work then just as you are at work now. You are repairing the ruins in our own hearts, in our communities. We thank you, God, that you're a good daddy that both loves us and wants to bring us into your family business of repairing what's broken in the world. So God, help us to do that. Help us to follow you. 
Help us to see what you're doing. We pray that your spirit would meet us here, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we planted the church, I met purposefully with ministry leaders in the clean area. So I lived in Temple before moving over here to plant the church, uh, and was part of a church in Temple that sent us out to plant the church with kind of a core of commuters that had been commuting over from Colleen to Temple. Um, so part of the process back in 2005, 2006, was to meet with leaders over here. I met with uh, chaplains, I met with local pastors, uh, I met with other ministry leaders, I met with just families that were interested in being a part of uh, what we wanted to do, uh, of bringing grace to Colleen, Texas, to the Fort Hood area. One of the guys that I became friends with very quickly was a man named Johnny Russell. Some of you may have known him. He was the director of Young Life here in Colleen, Texas. Uh, Any of you ever heard of Young Life Ministries? Young Life is a ministry uh, that seeks to take the good news of Jesus to teenagers that wouldn't otherwise uh, darken the door of a church. Uh, So a ministry that really pursues kids to share the gospel with them through taking them to camps, meeting them on their own turf at, you know, games or school activities or whatever, inviting them to, to weekly clubs where they talk about Jesus and just have fun together. Now, uh, if any of you have ever been involved in any kind of youth ministry, you know that there's kind of the stereotypical youth pastor type. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Kind of extroverted, a lot of fun, kind of crazy. Any of you ever been around a youth pastor like that before? Okay, some of you, yeah. Um, so Johnny was that kind of guy, um, kind of to the extreme. So Johnny was a lot of fun, had a great sense of humor, but you always felt just a little bit nervous around him, right? Because he was just kind of—he was just kind of crazy. You just didn't know what was going to happen. He loved humor. Uh, he was always in costume or looked different every time you saw him. Loved to do skits. Loved to play practical jokes. And so he was that kind of guy. So I already knew this about him. Was just getting to know him, uh, and was wanting to have a meeting with him to talk about the need and what we could do to meet the need of just the brokenness here in Colleen, Texas. How could we bring the gospel to Colleen? Uh, So I had this meeting with a little bit of a preconceived notion, I have to be honest, maybe I was shallow, but I was expecting Johnny to talk a lot about um, funny skits, being silly, using jokes to lead people to Jesus, right? Like that was kind of what I thought he would be talking about. But what I was gripped by was uh, he was in tears as he described the brokenness of the lives that he'd gotten involved with here, Um, both in his ministry to teens, but also Uh, in recruiting and getting to know young soldiers here in Colleen, Texas. His heart was was broken over the ruin that sin caused in people's lives. And so he kind of had this external shell of being extroverted and being crazy and being silly, but he had a heart of love for people here. He, He recognized the ruin that sin caused. And I think in the book of Nehemiah, we see a similar case of a man who was driven by a heart that was broken over sin. So as I said before, the whole Bible is about God repairing the ruins that our sin has caused in the world. As we zoom in here to Nehemiah, we'll see this great hero, this really strong man, and many focus in on leadership principles in the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah was a great leader. He was cupbearer to the king of the world, to the great Persian emperor. So the cupbearer would, would drink the wine first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And as you can imagine, if you have power and influence and you're part of the king's court, you wouldn't just wait to drink the wine uh, before you handed it to the king. You'd also make sure it wasn't getting poisoned, right? Um, so he was kind of like the head of the secret service, uh, chief bodyguard, chief confidant, chief assistant. 
He was this very powerful, very influential, very strong leader. So people love to go to Nehemiah and say, what are great leadership principles? What's great is that Nehemiah chapter 1 is all about prayer. It's just a one, it's one big, long prayer. We're about to get into the details of it. But it's about a man whose heart was broken over the ruins, and he prayed to God to repair the ruins. So it's really a beautiful picture of what leadership should be. It's not all about our skills. God uses our skills, but it's ultimately about God as the one who's going to repair the ruins. So let's first look at the first step in the process that we see in chapter 1. And the first step is grieving over the ruins. The first step is that broken heart. My question for you would be, applicationally, are you grieved over the ruin that sin causes in your own life, but in the lives of those around you? Is there any grief in your life over what sin does, how sin destroys us, how sin eats us up? So it starts in one with the setting, talking about the date and the time and where Nehemiah was, and he heard the report, right? So go back to verse 3. He says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the gates, the walls, the security of the city had been destroyed. Some of you grew up in neighborhoods where you never felt safe, where physically there was violence, there was abuse, there was difficulty. And so you can, you can at a heart level connect with, with what is happening here. This is a dangerous place and they don't have security. And and they can't promise safety to those that are trying to establish the worship of God and the place of God for the people of God, for the glory of God across the world. He wants to invite others in to see how great he is in this place, but it's an unsafe place. The walls have been broken down. People are in danger. And so look at verse 4. What is, how does Nehemiah respond? Verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah was broken. He, he grieved over the ruin that was taking place in the city of God. He was grieving over this ruin. He wanted to see the city of God be a place where God was worshipped, where people flourished, where people loved God and loved each other, but it was a place of disaster and ruin and brokenness. And so I would say a really important application for us is just starting off recognizing if we want to fix anything that's broken in the world, we have to first recognize that it's broken. Uh, If we want to repair anything in this world, we have to grieve over the ruin that is. So that's my question to you. Do you take time to grieve the ruins around you? Do you see it? Do you have eyes to see? Do you notice? There's a great scene in the movie Amazing Grace, which is a movie about William Wilberforce getting slavery abolished in England. And in this movie, there's a particular scene that's uh, gripping where he's on this slave ship called the Madagascar. Um, And he has set it up so this kind of tour boat of lords and ladies and parliament people goes by in the water, by close, in close proximity to this slave ship. And he did it on purpose because it stunk. He wanted them to smell it. He wanted them to viscerally experience the ruin of slavery, how wrong it was, how evil it was. And it's easy when we keep things at a distance to not grieve the reality of the sin and the brokenness that's happening there. But the man of God, the woman of God realizes, wakes up, we we smell it. Um, And I think that's an important first step. If we want to be used by God, it often starts with grief. 
It often starts with a broken heart. It starts with us recognizing people are hurting. Something is wrong. Something is, this is injustice. This is pain. This is people hurting themselves, killing themselves in, in sin. And that's where Nehemiah starts, and that's where we should start as well. We should open our, our eyes and our ears to the world around us. And I would challenge you that one of the reasons we don't do that is because we don't have hope, right? One of the reasons we don't do that is because we don't have hope. And so we're, we're afraid to really face the reality because we don't have hope that God is there and God would do anything about it. And so we often just avoid it. Uh, and there's kind of two twin ways we sometimes react when we do recognize it that are both non-God-centered ways. And I'd say one way we react is in despair of this is hopeless, it's too bad, so I, I don't want to smell it anymore, I don't want to grieve this anymore, I don't want to face this anymore, and we run the other direction. That would be despair. The other side is demanding, where we think we're God and we can fix it all ourselves. Or maybe we're of the kind of health and wealth gospel persuasion where we say, God, you have to fix this, and I'm praying in the right way with the right words, and so you have to do what I say. And we're being demanding with God. And what we see with Nehemiah is he approaches God in humility, in grief over sin, but he doesn't run the other way, and he doesn't become demanding with God, but he pursues God in prayer. He says, God, my heart is broken over this, and he fasts, and he prays, and he weeps. I love this because Nehemiah is one of the strongest men in the Bible, right? Like a chief bodyguard, a, a head of secret service type character in the great Persian empire. And here he says, I wept. I wept. I wept and mourned for days. Men, I would, I would challenge you. This, this is a church full of strong men. Part of being a strong man is weeping over sin and brokenness in your own life and in other people's lives. And sometimes to, to keep your mind on mission and on the job, you know, you push those emotions off until later, but that dam has got to break, right? It's got to burst out. It's got to come out at some point. You've got to grieve over the brokenness that you've seen and that you see in the lives of other people. So I just want to challenge you to that, that that's an application of strength, is being someone who grieves over sin, who weeps and mourns and fasts and prays before the God of heaven. The next thing that we see is really interesting. We see Nehemiah owning the ruins. He owns the ruins. He doesn't just keep them at a distance and say, oh, isn't that bad, that hypothetical bad situation over there? He rushes in. He becomes a part of the mess. He, he joins the brokenness and he owns it personally. We see a beautiful example of prayer that is a biblical way of praying, of saying, that's sin, but you know what? I'm a sin too. I'm a sinner too. Or that over there is ruined, but you know what? I'm ruined also. And so it's, it's not just naming something bad, it's saying, and I, I own part of the problem as well. So, so look at verse 5 here. He says, I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, steadfast love is a great word. We see in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word, chesed, uh, which is the closest thing to grace and unconditional love, right? So in the New Testament, we talk about agape love is unconditional love that Jesus shows us uh, by dying for our sins. We talk about grace, right? The idea of God showing us um, favor that we didn't earn. Jesus took 
our sins upon himself and he gives us freely his righteousness. And so the best Old Testament word for both of those things is chesed. It's God's uh, steadfast love, his unending love, his covenantal love, his I'm coming after you love. And so here, Nehemiah names that love. It says, O Lord God of heaven, it's the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Listen to this. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. That'd be a great place to stop right there, right? Confessing their sins. Hear my prayer, they're bad. Wouldn't that be a good place to stop? But he keeps going. He says, listen, listen to this. So confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. If we're going to fix anything that's broken in this world, we have to own it ourselves. Christianity 101 is saying, I have a problem. I'm a part of the brokenness in the world. It's not just saying, the world is broken, fix it, God. It's not my issue. We say, I'm broken too. Fix me, God, please, by your grace. I don't deserve any fixing. It's not that I'm perfect and everybody else is messed up. I'm a part of the problem. God, fix me and fix them and help me be a part of your solution in this world. If we're going to repair any ruins in this world, we have to own the ruins ourselves. We have to enter into the messiness of the story. Instead of remaining in our comfort where we are isolated from the brokenness, we have to grieve over the ruin and enter in to the ruin to be a part of God's solution in that place. Individualism uh, is a very strong value in the Western world, which I think has led to a lot of beautiful, good things. Responsibility is at its core. Uh, and as Christians, we believe in personal responsibility. I am personally responsible as an individual to God for my sin. But Christianity, biblical Christianity, the idea of grace goes a step farther than that. It doesn't just keep it at, I'm personally responsible for what I did. It also says, and I'm willing to take responsibility for those around me. I'm willing to care for my brother, for my sister, for my family, for my tribe, for my nation, even go so far out to the world. The Christian is under the great commission to go to all the nations, even the nations we don't like, even the people that don't do things the way we do them. Go to all the nations, all the peoples, all the tribes, all the ethnes, and preach the gospel, and share the good news of who Jesus is, that God is good. And so we're not just individuals, we're also part of a community. And as those who love God, we, like God, own it ourselves. We, we jump into the mess instead of just leaving the mess over there. I have a picture here of soldiers practicing owning the mess. When you're a soldier and someone else goes down, you pick them up. You don't just say, get your stuff together, come on, you're individually responsible, Right? You're part of a team. You pick them up. And that's what the man of God or the woman of God is to do. We are to, we are to own the mess ourselves. We are to enter into the mess ourselves. James 5.18 gives us an application of this in the New Testament. It says, confess your sins one to another. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So this is basic Christian relating. We say, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? I'm a sinner. I need help. And we in 
community confess our sins to one another. We own that we're sinners too. It's not just the other guy. First uh, John uh, 1.9 says it this way. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to purify you, to justify you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So God sets up, there's, there's kind of two kinds of people there. There's people that own their sin and there's people that don't own their sin. There's people that say, I have a problem. And there's people that say, I don't have a problem, it's them over there. And so as Christians, we should follow in the footsteps of Nehemiah who owns the sin of his people. It's interesting, we're not really sure how, how holy Nehemiah is from this story. We don't know that much about him. He seems to have a temper problem. He's going to go ballistic later on in the book, and we'll see that. Uh, but what's interesting is this prayer parallels the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, the holiest man in the Bible besides Jesus, who is Daniel, the holiest man in the Bible prays this same exact kind of prayer. He says, God, we have sinned against you. He owns the mess. So it's a little less clear here in Nehemiah. Someone might argue, well, Nehemiah was a really bad sinner, so he needed to confess the sin. Daniel was clearly someone who kept himself pure. There was no one in the Bible more holy than Daniel who continually made decisions to not compromise, but to follow God. And Daniel prays this prayer of owning his tribal sins, owning the sins of his ancestors. So again, I would argue that this is a mark of Christianity, of not just being a responsible individual before God, but also owning and entering into the sin and the mess of others. Saying, I'm willing to I'm willing to carry that on my back. I'm willing to help out. I'm willing to enter in. I'm willing to say, I've got a problem and I'm a part of the problem and God help me to be a part of the solution. It's, it's a both and, it's not an either or. Well, the last thing that we see here in Nehemiah is who the real repairer of the ruins is. As I said, this, this is a book really about the great leadership of Nehemiah, but underneath all of this is that it's really about the great uh, redemptive work of God. God is the real hero of this story. Uh, So it picks up in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So what Nehemiah does here as this great leader is he says, God, you're really the leader here. God, I might have an important position, but you're really the king of the universe, and you've made these promises, and I'm going to remind you of these promises that you've made, because ultimately, God, you're the repairer of the ruins, not me. I might have this great position. I might have this great opportunity as this inside man with the emperor of the Persian empire. I might have a great opportunity to help fix this problem, but God, ultimately, it's you that fixes every problem. You're the real hero. You're the real repairer of the ruins. So he's reminding God of his faithfulness. He's reminding God of his promises. In verse 10, he says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Hear a little repetition there? Did you pick up on that? I'm going to read it one more time because I think it's the point of this whole section. God is the repairer. He says in verse 10, they are your servants, your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man 
And then he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And we don't quite get that, right, because cupbearer is not a position we have in this world. But he's kind of just dropped the line like, now I was the studliest man in the kingdom. I mean, that's kind of what he just said. It's like, I was, and I was the head of the secret service. I was this awesome bodyguard. I was this, you know, super superhero guy that protected the emperor of the entire world. And he just kind of drops that. And I want you to recognize there's a contrast there. He's saying he's, he's contrasting I had this incredible position. I was an inside man with the emperor, with the king. But God is the one that's going to do this. It's God's strong hand. It's God's redemption. It's God's work in the world. And so we just need to recognize that that's a pattern of being used by God is recognizing, God, you've given me these skills. You've given me five loaves and five fishes. You've given me this gift. You've given me this business. You've given me this position. You've given me this house. You've given me this idea, whatever it is. But God... Ultimately, it's you. You've got to be at work or nothing is going to happen. God, if you're not doing this, it's not going to happen because you are the repairer of what's ruined and what's broken in the world. And so that's what Nehemiah points us to. Only God can fix it. It's one of the great illustrations of being a parent is walking your kids through doing things that they couldn't do apart from your strength. It's just one of the most thrilling things that we get to learn is about how God is thrilled to work through us. One of the great illustrations uh, I've gone back to again and again is taking your kids to the beach. I remember the first time I took my daughter to the beach, she was terrified of the waves, but when I was holding her, she was less afraid because my strength had become her strength, and so then the waves could bounce her around, and she was okay because I was holding on to her. And she naturally knew that, that I could keep her safe. And we have this great privilege as parents or as teachers or as leaders to help people do things they didn't think they could do. And it's times a thousand with God, times a million with God. He is the king of the universe. He is the repairer of what's broken in the world. And he wants to use our little little contribution. He wants to work through us. We're like children, but he wants to work through us because we're his children. And he's inviting us into the family business of repairing what's broken in the world. God is actually at work when you feel convicted, when you're grieved over a sin or an injustice, and you want to be a part of fixing that. God is at work in you and through you. And you need to recognize that, that he's the ultimate one that loves the world even better than you do, that loves your children more than you do, that loves your neighbors more than you do, that loves your company more than you do. He's the one at work. What I want you to see is that this is a biblical pattern of prayer as well that Nehemiah is praying. I want to transition to some practical application here. We've seen Nehemiah as a hero to be imitated in that he's praying and pointing us to God as the ultimate hero, right? And that whole act we call prayer. When we see something that's wrong and we go to God, we call that prayer. We're talking to God. We're asking God for help. And so just practical application. What I want you to see is that Nehemiah is praying a biblically patterned prayer. Um, So Nehemiah is not just making this up. It perplexes commentators sometimes until they realize, oh yeah, Nehemiah was reading his Bible and praying biblical prayers. And then it makes sense because you see these kind of repeated patterns of prayer throughout Scripture. Uh, You see this really strongly, a parallel between these uh, exile guys, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel in chapter 9, chapter 9, and chapter 9. So if you're a note-taker, Look up Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, uh, and Daniel 9, and you'll see a a similar pattern of prayer, and also here in Nehemiah chapter 1. 
Um, what's also interesting is this mimics very closely a pattern of prayer that we see in the Psalms. So it's likely that these guys grew up praying the Psalms, praying through Scripture. Uh, some Psalms you could write down to look up are Psalm 74, Psalm 79, Psalm 80, and Psalm 85. These category of psalms are called <clears throat> community laments, right? So a communal lament saying, God, we're broken, we have a problem. Uh, and what you see with these post-exile guys is they, they add in repentance. So they're often called prayers of repentance. They're reminding God of his promises, reminding God that he's the great savior, and then asking him to save, asking him to repair the ruins. And I would just offer that to you as a pattern of prayer in your own life. Right? Uh, a lot of us like to be clear that because we have a relationship with God through Jesus, we can come to him anytime we like, um, like a child holding his daddy's hand, and we're free to pray spontaneously. And the next chapter, we'll see Nehemiah praying that way, just spontaneous prayer. It doesn't seem planned. It doesn't seem scripted. But here, we also see careful biblical prayer. And so I would encourage you to try to have a balanced diet of that kind of prayer in your life. I know some of us are more spontaneous, some of us are more planned. I tend to be a more spontaneous person, but in times of dryness in my own prayer life, I'll go to the scriptures and I'll try to pray New Testament prayers or pray Psalms, just read them, pray them back to God. And this is a great way to biblically pattern your own prayers. Um, some people pray favorite hymns back to God, right? Songs that we sing in church. There's a, a book that a lot of people like called The Valley of Vision. Um, if you like old stuff and poetry, it's a lot of collected Puritan prayers. And so that's a great way to pray. Um, so I'd recommend that to you. There's a, one of my favorite prayer books is a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Um, it's not a book of prayers, but it's a book kind of teaching us how to pray. And he has this quote, at the center of self-will is me carving a world in my image at the center of prayer is, is God carving me in his son's image. So he s just sets up that juxtaposition, right? Sometimes uh, we don't pray because I'm at the center of my world. But he argues that when we pray, we're putting God at the center of the world and we're saying, God, you have to move if anything's going to happen here. Uh, and then when he, he talks about balancing spontaneous prayer and planned scripted biblical prayers here, and I want to give you a little quote he gives here. Many people are suspicious of all systems. They feel like it kills the spirit. Systems seem to fly in the face of what we learned about childlike praying. But all of us create systems with things that are important to us. Remember, life is both holding hands and scrubbing floors. Life is both holding hands and scrubbing floors. He's kind of saying there, we have both of those sides to life, right? There's a spontaneous, free, childlike faith, and there's also the kind of planned, uh, grubby work where we have to get down on our hands and knees and scrub. So life is both holding hands and scrubbing floors. It's both being and doing. Prayer journals or prayer cards are on the scrubbing floors side of life. Praying like a child is on the holding hands side of life. And we need both. So here again, we see Nehemiah praying biblically patterned prayers. He's been reading the scriptures. He's praying the Psalms. He's praying Deuteronomy. He's praying God's word back to God. And I would say that's a great way to pray when you, when you just don't know what to say. And I'd also say, just like we'll see next week in Nehemiah, you can also just talk to God anytime, anywhere, no matter what. You don't have to have the right words to approach God. Because of Jesus giving himself to us in the cross, we can approach God. It's not because of the words that we speak. So to close up, we'll, we'll go to Jesus. 
And we'll see that, you know what, Jesus spoke biblically patterned prayers as well. We see him praying psalms from the cross. We see that Jesus was a man full of Old Testament scripture. It's a great book called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament by Christopher Wright uh, that kind of unfolds that for us. It shows how Jesus was just full of Old Testament scripture and it just came out of him all the time and everything he taught and everything that he prayed. Um, But what's even more cool as you read the book of Nehemiah is you recognize that this great hero, Nehemiah, is overshadowed by the greater hero, Jesus. When you think about it, Jesus also grieved over our sin and the ruin of this world, right? Think about uh, Jesus weeping when his friend died. You, you think about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. We also recognize that Jesus owned the ruin of this world. He didn't just stay in heaven. Philippians tells us he didn't just stay in his comfort, but he left the comforts of heaven, and he entered into the mess with us, and he owned our sin for us. That's what the cross was all about. And then finally, because of that, Jesus is the one that repairs the ruins. Our hope is in what Jesus accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. Jesus is rebuilding the city of God where God dwells with us. It's in Jesus himself. So let me pray for us, and we'll celebrate this great truth through communion together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us Jesus as the repairer of the ruins. Father, I pray that we would have uh, the emotional energy to grieve over what's broken around us, to to own it, and to recognize that you're the repairer of the ruins, that you're the one that's going to fix it. And we ask that you would use us. We thank you that you love us enough to make us your children through the cross. And we thank thank you also that you love us enough to bring us into your business of rebuilding, repairing, fixing what is broken. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.